We're in Habakkuk chapter 3, and we're going to read the scriptures together. And why don't we stand while we do that? This, uh, this is a psalm, it's a hymn, it's a prayer, it's a song, and it has five parts. But, you know, a, a good sermon only has three points, so somehow I've had to squish the five into three. So we're going to, I'm going to read, and you follow along as I read. Uh, the first part is prayer for revival. Hear the word of God. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from the south and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. The second part is remembering the Exodus. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the land. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered and the everlasting hills sank low. And his were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cush and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Jehovah? Was your anger against the rivers of your, or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses or on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. The next part is remembering the conquest. You, put the, you split the land with rivers. The mountains saw you and with, uh, writhed. The, the raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth, through the land in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. The, the next part is responding to this with fear and repentance. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And the last part is responding with faith and joy. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in Jehovah. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high, my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. 
And thus ends the reading of God's word. May the grass wither and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stand forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So today is the the 10th and and last Sunday in a sermon series on living and being countercultural in in a world that is sometimes difficult. We've spent six weeks in the book of Daniel and then now four weeks in the book of Habakkuk, the prophet, looking at faithfulness for the believer when the culture and, and even the world events are against us. And if you remember, both Daniel and Habakkuk are ministering during the demise and fall of Jerusalem around 600 BC um, and moving forward in time from that, that point. And Josiah, the great and godly king of Judah, has died, and now his horrible sons are, are ruling Judah and their puppets of Egypt and and, uh, Babylon for 20 years as Judah crumbles and comes to an end. And so Andrew's preached three sermons already on Habakkuk. The first was from chapter one was about uh, Habakkuk's complaint. And his complaint is why do the righteous suffer and evil prevail? That's a complaint that a lot of believers have at some point or another. And God answers that complaint. And so in the second sermon, we learned about waiting in prayer on God's plan and purpose to be revealed in our lives, especially during trouble. And and then last week, we looked at at God's justice, uh, our judgments, the justice and the hope and and the glory of God's judgments. Because if there is no ultimate justice, then life has no meaning itself. And so this, this week, we're in Habakkuk 3. This is one of the most famous prayers in the Bible. It, it ought to be memorized by every believer, especially the last three verses. And beloved, this, this poem, this, this psalm, this song is a model of revival praying. Not simply a prayer for revival, but what revival praying looks like, and that prayer has three parts. So part number one, remember God's power in prayer. Remember God's power in prayer. Now Habakkuk begins his prayer by asking God to make himself known to his people, to awaken their memories to his greatness and to his glory and and his saving work on their behalf. Uh, revival, revival begins with remembering. Uh, let me say that again. Revival, and lots of people pray for revival. Revival begins with remembering. Though, though God never forgets, revival prayer begins by asking God to remember his own covenant and his promises with his people. And that's because God's promise is that he will remember his covenant. After the flood, God remembers Noah and his promises. When Israel is enslaved in Egypt and they're groaning, God remembers his covenant and he saves them. When Israel commits their great sin at Mount Sinai by building and worshiping the golden calf and God threatens to wipe them out and start over, Moses prays. And he asked God to remember his covenant with Abraham. 
to multiply his descendants and make them like the stars of the heavens. Beloved, God never forgets, but we do. So remembering is the key connection to faithfulness in our relationship with him. He he remembers his promises to love and, and to save and to protect and to even to discipline us. And, and, and therefore, we remember to, to worship, to obey, and to enjoy him exclusively. And to teach other people to do the same. So praying for him to remember is how we remember. And, and in the old covenant, the Sabbaths and the feasts were designed to remember God's uh, God's love and and work of faithfulness. So Moses said, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. In the new covenant, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We celebrate communion and it's at the table that we remember the work of Christ on the cross and in the resurrection. And one of the great passages of remembering is found in Deuteronomy 6. It's a often called the Shema because the first word here is Shema in Hebrew. It goes like this. It's on the screen. Hear, O Israel, Jehovah our God, Jehovah is one, or Jehovah is the only God. You shall love Jehovah your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The whole culture of Israel was built around remembering what God has done in salvation for his people and and judgment for his enemies. And so we find this continuing in the church as well when right after Pentecost, we read that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so this morning, I just want to commend to you your Bible. Uh, uh, Daily reading. I think that's a Bible. I I, I have an iPad, so you can't hold up your Bible in the sermon anymore. But here's one sitting up here. So if you brought a Bible, hold it up. There it is. I want to commend to you your, your Bible, daily reading even of your Bible, remembering what God has done. Beloved, it's, it's more vital than social media or Fox News or Sports Center or New York Times. I was in a men's group on Tuesday a couple of years ago and we made the commitment to each other that the first thing we would look at in the morning would be our Bibles and not our not our uh, tablets and not our phones. I guess you could read on your phone, I do. But, but before you'd ever look at, at Facebook or the news or anything else, we made the commitment to each other that we would look at the Bible. And that's what I want to commend to you. Read your Bible in the, in the morning before you look at anything else. And if you need to get up 10 minutes earlier, then do it. That's why our church has a yearly Bible reading program. Did you know we had that? In fact, 
It's the first thing you see on our church website. I, I love that. that. That is awesome that when you go to our website, right there it says daily Bible reading program. For, for 45 years as a Christian, as I've followed Jesus as an adult, I've been reading through the Bible every year. And, and every year I tell you that I see something new that I've never seen before. Or maybe it's just because I'm getting old. I don't remember that I saw it. So, something old that I've forgotten. It's why we read and teach the Bible on Sunday mornings, uh, in worship, in Sunday school, in, in community groups during the week, because revival praying begins with Bible reading. How about that? Revival prayer begins in, in your Bible with Bible reading. The, the, great, uh, the great man of faith, the praying man, George Mueller, said that the key to prayer is Bible reading. And he found that when he tried to pray without reading his Bible, he, had a, a, he was stuck, he had an obstacle. But then when he would read his Bible and be reminded of God's work, it would drive him right to prayer. So I wanna commend to you to your Bible. God commands Israel to remember what he did to Pharaoh and the Exodus and the conquest of the promised land. They wrote and they sang songs and hymns about it, like Psalm 105 and 106 and 136, to just name a few. And that's exactly what Habakkuk is doing and praying about and having Israel sing about in sections two and three of this psalm. In verse five, he mentions the plagues on Egypt. In, in verse eight, he sings about God's glorious throne chariot, which is, if you remember, is carried by the, the, the four giant six-winged cherubim seen by Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and by the apostle John in Revelation chapters four and five and sung about by King David in Psalm 18 when God saved him from Saul. You see, God accommodates himself to us and to, and to the surrounding cultures so that we can understand him because unless he reveals himself to us, he would be unknowable. So he accommodates to us. Uh, John Calvin said he talks to us in baby talk so that we can understand what he's saying. And so in the ancient world, kings would have chariots and they would often be dr driven by four horses. And so whenever God shows up on Israel's behalf, whenever he breaks through and reveals himself in power and glory, he comes in a glorious throne chariot that is surrounded by fire and cloud. Theologians call this a theophany, a God appearance. And so that's what happened in the Exodus. If you remember the story, Pharaoh regrets letting Israel go. Even after all the plagues and after his firstborn son has died and after he's let them go, he regrets doing it. So he gathers the army, they get in their chariots and they chase the people of God down by the Red Sea and they pin them in and then God shows up in a pillar of fire that surrounds his chariot. And, and God intervenes and so the question is whose chariot wins? Well, obviously it's Jehovah's chariot that wins the day. And what happens to Pharaoh's chariot? Boom, bottom of the sea, 
all dead, all drowned. Jehovah and his chariot is victorious. So Habakkuk sings about it. And he got parts of that song, I think, from Moses and Miriam because they wrote a song in Exodus 15. It's one of the top chart hits in the Old Testament, the song in Exodus 15. I'm sure you remember it. Here's the first three verses just to remind you. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Jehovah saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Jehovah is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Jehovah is a man of war. Jehovah is his name. Y'all remember that? Those of you who are my age might remember singing this back in the 70s and 80s. Do you remember that song? We used to sing it. Joel, we ought to still sing it. It's a classic. You you remember? It goes like this. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. You remember this? (coughs) No, you're looking at me a little funny. (coughs) No? The Lord, my God, my strength, my song, has now become my victory. You don't remember that? You remember that, don't you? Yes, she is. So in our psalm this morning, Habakkuk remembers God's conquest of the promised land through Joshua. First, he's remembering the exodus, and then he moves to the next saving event, which is the conquest through Joshua. And so in verse 11 of Habakkuk 3, he sings about the sun and the moon standing still. It's a reference to John 10, He's remem- Joshua 10. He's remembering that event where the sun stood still. Here it is. At that time, Joshua spoke to Jehovah. So Joshua prays. He spoke to Jehovah in the day when Jehovah gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he prayed in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And so the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set for, a, for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when Jehovah heeded the voice of a man for Jehovah fought for Israel. Now, that's a day we're singing about, amen? Mm, You're not convinced yet, are you? You're trying to think about the sun standing still for a whole day, and you need to reject your scientific worldview and have a biblical worldview. God stopped the sun so that Israel would prevail. That's the story, and that's what Habakkuk is remembering with praise. Revival prayer, revival praying begins with remembering the greatness and the glory of God and his saving works on behalf of his people. And see, the problem is Habakkuk has not directly experienced those kind of days, and so he's having doubts and he's complaining. But he was not going to let his soul remain stuck in grief and complaint. 
Instead, he was reminding God and himself of days of former mercies. Beloved, this is why we teach you to begin prayer meetings and community groups, group prayer, prayer times by beginning with answers to prayer instead of taking long requests because we want to remember together what God is doing so that we will remember the look of the work of God and rejoice because first we look up and we see that the Father is working on our behalf. And it's only then that we begin to look in and be concerned about ourselves. So that takes us to point number two, that we would tremble and wait in prayer. Tremble and wait in prayer. What's the appropriate response to God's power and glory? How do we respond to the great power of God for salvation and judgment when he reveals himself? Well, the answer is in verse 16. Put that back up there, would you? Here it is. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. It sounds like Isaiah in front of the Most High when he said, woe is me for I am undone. He says, rottenness enters into my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble, not to come upon us, but to come upon the people who invade us. Because that's what God has promised. You don't have to put that up yet. Listen, listen, if the glory of God revealed in scripture doesn't make you tremble a little, then it's probably not the true God who you're following. If, if he doesn't make you a little nervous, it, it's not Jehovah, it's certainly not Jesus. If the God who destroys Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet at that point, if the God who stops the sun in order to save his people, if the God who raises himself from the dead, the Lord Jesus, doesn't make you just the slightest bit nervous, then maybe you don't know him after all. It's like, it'd be like having a dad who's just a friend or a pal or a peer. I see that all the time in my kid's generation. Everybody wants to be their kid's pal. Beloved, that's for later. Now you need to be the parent. You know, when when I was a kid, we used to argue about whose dad was the greatest. Did you do that? Do y'all still do that? I don't know if my kids did it or not. I'm sure I lost if they did. (laughs) You know, it went like this. My dad's better than your dad. My, my dad's a better basketball player than your dad. That tells you I'm from Kentucky. My dad has a cooler, faster, and better car than your dad. And here was the ultimate. My dad could beat your dad up. Now that's what we would boast about, about our dads. Not my dad's my friend. My dad could beat your dad up in a fight. No question. Doesn't everybody want a dad who's tough and powerful and great and just a little bit fearful, fearsome? I think so. I like to say it this way. Every teenage boy deserves to have a father who he's just a little bit afraid of, right? A a little filial fear 
goes a long way towards faithfulness. I, I used to tell my kids on occasion, not a lot, but occasionally I'd say, now kids, there's a bear that lives in there. And you don't want to wake the bear. Don't wake the bear. And every once in a while, the bear would come out, and he was fearsome. Jesus is the lion of Judah. Jesus is fearsome. He's not a tame lion. He's a fearsome lion. And you want to be on his team. Now you can put up Ezekiel 1. This is, this is the... Uh, the appearance of the theophany in Ezekiel 1 when, when Ezekiel the prophet saw the throne chariot. And we could read the whole thing, but there's not time. Here's just a little bit where he actually sees the Son of Man. And above the expanse, over the heads of the cherubim, there was like the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. I love this verse. He's so overwhelmed that everything just looks like something else. He doesn't really know how pure what he's looking at is. And so the throne looks like sapphire and and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. Whenever Jehovah, whenever Jesus the Lord shows up in power and glory, there's always fire and smoke and lightning and what looks like jewels, brightness and glory. And, and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of brightness all around. My wife likes, we live in the woods, my wife likes on rainy days, it's glowy out there, isn't it, Sherry? Sherry will look outside and she'll say, it's glowy today, Jim. And so how does Ezekiel respond to the, to, to the presence of the, the Most High? Well, he falls on his face as though dead, the Bible says. He responds to the vision of this second person of the Trinity, the the eternal son, the son of man, the, the Lord Jesus by falling on his face. It's the same thing that happens to the apostle John in the book of Revelation. At the last supper, we see that John is cuddling with Jesus, laying on his bosom, it says, But after the ascension, when John sees Jesus in his ascended glory in Revelation 1, he falls on his face like Ezekiel. He falls on his face as though dead. That's what you do in the presence of the glory of God. And so we see this remarkable story also in Mark 4. It's the story of Jesus calming the storm. Do you remember this story? So... The, 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 the disciples, the apostles, a bunch of fishermen are, are on the sea and, and a storm comes up that's so fearsome that they wake the carpenter in the back of the boat to save them. That makes me laugh every time I read it too. How's a carpenter going to save a bunch of fishermen? And so here we see it. He, Jesus was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing And he awoke and rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. 
And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. You know, in many parts of the world, in, in, in the West, we follow things logically. And we often talk about guilt when we think of God. And many places in the world, they, their, their religious beliefs are animists. They believe in spirits and demons. And they've seen them up close. And they're looking for a God who is more powerful than the demons. And that's the Lord Jesus. And so Habakkuk begins his prayer in verse 2, praying, Lord, I've heard about your works, now I want to see them. And then when we get to verse 16, it makes me chuckle a little bit, and I'm thinking, maybe not. Maybe I'm not ready to see the power of God on full display in all his glory. But you see, trembling at the power and presence of God is actually a grace. I want you to get this. It's a grace that leads to repentance. You see, repentance leads to confession and waiting on God. And sometimes it's a confession of sin, but most often it's a confession for believers of self-sufficiency. You see, repentance has two parts to it. It's both turning away from sin, but that's not the end of it. It's also turning away from taking credit for the good that I do. So when I've had a a really good day and I've been obedient, it's our tendency to take credit for that. And we have to repent of that tendency as much as we do of disobedience. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm prone to self-sufficiency. Are you like me? Any lack in my prayer life is because I think I can get it done on my own. I get things done. That's who I am. I solve problems. I'm an engineer. I make it work. And so I am weighed down by self-sufficiency. And if my prayer life lacks, it's not because I'm lazy. I'm not lazy. It's because I'm prideful. And I'm certain that I'm okay on my own. I don't need to pray. That's the same problem Israel had. They're God's people. So they had the tendency to self-sufficiency. You can see it in Isaiah 30 right at the beginning. Here's the the first part of the first verse where God says, "Oh, Oh my goodness, stubborn children, declares Jehovah, who carry out a plan, but it's not mine. Did you know that in the 1960s, in the 1960s, church attendance in America was the highest it's ever been in the history of our country. Now, nationalist Christians like to talk about the good old days, and they're thinking about before the 60s and back in the 1800s and the 1700s, the most church attendance ever was in the 1960s. How about that? While we're in the midst of a sexual revolution and a war in Vietnam, people were in church. And over 60% of America was in weekly attendance at church. Imagine such a world. Some of us can remember it. Now it's less than 20%. I, I read a statistic just 15 years ago, so I know this is a wrong statistic now. Do you think church attendance is higher in the city or in the country where we are here? What do you think? City is correct. 
when I read this statistic, I was aghast. 15, 15 years ago, church attendance in Fulton County was 28%. In Douglas County, where I live, it was 21%. In Carroll County, 16%. That's the definition of self-sufficiency because I know we'll find more people who say they love Jesus in Carroll County than we will in Fulton County. But they're not going to church because they're okay. Me and Jesus and, and America, we're okay. Maybe it's time, maybe we're not following God's plan. Maybe in our self-sufficiency, what's, ha- what's happened to cause a decline in attendance in one generation from 60% to 20%. What's happened What's happening to us? Well, maybe like Israel, we're not following God's plan, but our own instead. Maybe we're too clever by half. Maybe it's time for God's church in America to tremble a little bit and and to get praying. That's the invitation of God. Here it is in verse 15 of Isaiah 30. He says, for thus says the Lord Jehovah, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling and you said, no, we will flee on horses. So God says, therefore you shall flee. And we will ride upon swift steeds. And Jehovah says, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. Look at verse 18. Here's the invitation. Therefore Jehovah waits to be gracious to you. He longs to be gracious to us. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. That was Habakkuk's prayer. Would you remember your mercy, O Father? For Jehovah is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. That's the invitation, to leave self-sufficiency and to wait and work for the Lord Jesus. And the waiting is not a matter of doing nothing but a matter of prayerful repentance and watchfulness. God is looking for those who will stand in the gap, who tremble at his power and who seek his face on behalf of the kingdom. Those who rest in his righteousness and the righteousness of Christ and do the will and the work of the Lord Jesus. He is waiting for those who wait. He is giving grace to those who long for, to those who pray and seek grace. He will give it to them. Here's the the call in Isaiah 62. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. This is the word of the Lord. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. You know, in the ancient world, the city had a wall and there were watchmen on the wall and their job was to look for danger 
out uh, uh, around the, the countryside. And that's what they would watch for so that they could then give word back to their supervisors who would take that to the king so they could decide what to do. So it says, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put Jehovah in remembrance. There's our Habakkuk prayer again. Those who put Jehovah in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. This is a prayer for the kingdom of God, for the church of the most high. God's plan, he says in Ephesians, is to reveal the glory of Christ through the church. It's to bring the gospel of glory through his people. Isn't that stupid? His plan is to bring the kingdom to the world through us. Now, there's a great picture. I share this illustration once in a while. There's a, there's a great picture of me. You know, I don't, I don't know how you do this anymore, but when I left home, when I got married at 20, my mother gave me my picture book I, with phones. I don't know how you do that, but I walked away with a picture book, and in that picture is of me at three years old holding a tuba for. It was about three feet long. And I'm holding a two before, and there's a picture of my young dad in his mid to late 20s. And we're doing a project together. I am so certain that I was helpful. <laughs> that the project went forward better and quicker and more sure because I was helping. The young engineer helping his daddy engineer, we were building. Well, that's what God does. We're the little kids. We get to help Jehovah build the kingdom. It's a crazy, crazy thing. And the foolishness of the gospel is meant to show us that we need to be, that we are not sufficient for the task, that we're little children. We call him father. And so we pray and we ask him to give us something to do to help him build his kingdom. And it's a silly plan if efficiency is what you're measuring. But if love is the measuring stick, it's an enormously good plan. So what the watchmen are doing is trembling and waiting for the sake of God's kingdom, praying for God to execute his plan to establish his people, to be countercultural as a watchman on the wall, to give God no rest as you wait in revival prayer. Is this you, beloved? Are you watching and waiting in revival prayer? Is this us? Are we this kind of church? Is King's Chapel a house of prayer for all nations? That's the question, that's the call. And so it takes us to the third point, which is to rejoice and to work in prayer. We don't stay in the place of fear. The trembling drives us to pray out for the glory of King Jesus to be revealed in the nations. Here's the prayer, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. 
The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in Jehovah. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Well, Sherry and I live in Douglasville in the woods. We live down a private road with three other houses. Now, don't think of it as luxurious or castle-like. We have an acre. It's an acre in the woods. And so we like to tell people we live in the woods in the city. And so we have critters, especially deer. We, li- we, like, to, we like to feed the critters and we like to feed the deer. My friends who are hunters ask me why I'm feeding the vermin. And, uh, and we've slowly tamed our deer to the point that we can sit on our front porch. There's a picture of the babies this summer. And they will eat 40, 40 feet away. See, at the bottom of the picture is the rail of my front porch. So those deer were about 40 feet away. And there was about seven or eight of them. Those are just the babies. And so Sherry and I will sit out there at night, two or three nights a week, and feed the deer and wait till they come. What's amazing to me is how skinny their legs are. Look at that. They got skinny little legs. And they can run through the woods at 30 miles an hour without disaster. I don't know how that is even possible. They don't break their legs. They're not breaking their ankles. And they can jump like anything you've ever imagined. How do those little legs get them six feet over a six-foot fence? I don't get it. Usually when people pray these People quote these three verses at the end of Habakkuk. They're talking about God's sovereign grace especially to to preserve us in times of personal trouble. Andrew preached about that two weeks ago in chapter two. But these verses here aren't about nail biting while we cling to God as our only hope. This is revival prayer for joy and strength and the nimble feet of deer and worship on the hillside while life happens, good or bad. We are praying for joy no matter what, beloved. That's the call. And God is working out his plan, and that sometimes includes personal or national or even international trouble like we see in the Middle East. And this affects his people. But his preserving grace affects us more. Do you see that? That his preserving grace is more powerful than what's happening in the world. We are repenting of our unbelief. Joel did it earlier with us. Maybe that unbelief is being stuck in grief in some way or the grief of abandonment. That's what orphans have. Maybe everyone in your life has lit you down or left you. Maybe you think God has left you. That's what Habakkuk was wrestling with, not personally, but corporately. He felt like God had abandoned Israel. And and I sometimes feel that way about America. How can we go from 60% church to 20% in one generation? Lord, Lord Jesus, what are you doing? Well, the answer is he's working out his will and his way and his eternal plan throughout the nations. 
He's building his kingdom. 89,000 people a day come to faith in the Lord Jesus around the world. That's 40 million people a year. And sometimes he prunes back the local trees so that they will bear more fruit. I pray that we're not in such demise that we can't come back. I'm praying that God is pruning us so that we can bear even more fruit than a 60% church people. I don't know what the future brings, but that's what revival praying does, you see. And sometimes he prunes back those trees that they'll bear more fruit. And Habakkuk had to tremble at God's power instead of trembling at his trouble in order to see it. We are God's children, beloved. We are firstborn sons. We're joint heirs with Jesus. That's who we are. We sang that earlier. Getting stuck in the sin of self-pity and allowing ourselves to remain feeling abandoned when God promises never to forsake us will rob us of the joy of our salvation. So Habakkuk turns to the sovereign grace of God to pray the out of revival prayer. The sovereign grace of God is not something that we simply cling to in times of trouble, but something that we rely on every day for joy and strength and fruit bearing, for, for going to work and, and for parenting, for, for making financial decisions, for raising a godly seed to love Jesus, for generosity, to forgive others as we want to be forgiven, to, to live for Jesus, to love God the Father, and to love your neighbor as yourself. God decides where and when we're going to live. That's his business. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Acts 17. God decides when and where you're going to live. He decided who your parents were going to be. That's why racism is so stupid. God decided who your parents were, not you. Doesn't have anything to do with you. He may put you in the world during decades of war, or it may be decades of peace. But you see, God chooses that. And he does this for his own glory and our good. Everybody's got their deal that has to be overcome to put their faith in Christ. And that's the conclusion that Habakkuk comes to by remembering and trembling. To trust in God's sovereign grace is to live counterculturally. To engage in the life that God gives us with his abiding strength. Because there is joy in the journey, and this joy comes only from Christ. That, beloved, is countercultural to get your joy from Jesus. Listen, listen. I need the grace of God as much today as I have ever needed it. You don't ever grow out of that need. In fact, you become more aware of that need as you grow. There is no one here in this room who needs that grace more than me. No one. And there is no one here who needs God's sovereign preserving grace any less than me. We are in a spiritual battle with evil and God's grace is sufficient for the hour. Isn't that good? 
and amazing and wonderful? Now, here's the bad news. The bad news is, is that no one escapes from pain and suffering. No one. Whether it's personal or national, no, not one. Neither rich or poor, powerful or weak, everyone gets a taste. Adam chose himself instead of choosing God. And we're all born with that same nature. If you don't believe me, just watch a two-year-old. I heard about these travails on the way into the church this morning, about the travails of a toddler choosing themselves over mommy and daddy. It happens in every house. Just watch. You didn't teach them that. They got it from you, though. (laughs) The results of that sin multiplied in every generation is a broken world in which on a good day, a really good day, it feels like you're riding around on a car with four flat tires. That's why we need a savior, isn't it? Otherwise we could save ourselves and Jesus died for nothing. God ordained the Babylonians to crush Habakkuk's world, but don't believe for a second that God had to convince them to do it. They were eager for the task. Just look at Hamas. It's who we are. If you choose to stay with your complaints and your disappointments and neglect the remembering and the trembling at God's power and revival prayer, then you will get stuck. And you will stay stuck in your disappointments and your self-pity and your shallow spirituality and your prayerlessness. And worse still, you may be lost altogether. And that's worse than the suffering you're experiencing. Oh, I hope you see that. It's bad to be stuck, to imagine that God doesn't care for you. But there is good news, beloved. It's an incredible good news. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. Jesus died on a cross for our sins, even our disappointments and our complaints. Jesus trembled in the garden for you and for me. Do you get that? He trembled for you. He looked into the cup of the raging fury of God's wrath and judgments and he quaked at the sight of what was coming, sweating big drops like blood. And he chose to embrace your suffering and judgment. Now, why did he do that? Well, there's only one answer, love. Love is the answer. Eternal love for his people and his children. Hebrews 12 says that he did it for the joy that was set before him. Enduring the cross, despising the shame, being reseated in glory at the right hand of the Father. That's what he prayed for in John 17. Father, return me to the glory that I had with you from the foundation of the world. Seated at his right hand. That's why he did it for joy, for love, for you, for me. Jesus died for our sin and he rose from the dead to give us strength and joy and nimbleness and worship. 
We are united with him in his death and his resurrection. When Jesus died, I died. And when Jesus rose, you rose. He invites us to reject the fear and the self-pity and to follow him as a firstborn son and embrace our suffering and fight the countercultural fight, the good fight of the gospel. It's the only pathway to end self-sufficiency and the only journey with joy. Here's Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Can I get a hallelujah? By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. And listen now, if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Glory. That's what Habakkuk saw when he trembled. He saw the glory. The heavens opened in his faith, in his eyes for just a moment, and he saw the glory of God the glory of King Jesus. And that's what Habakkuk found and he wrote this prayer so that Israel and the church would find it as well. Life is short, beloved. Don't waste time getting stuck. Make your life count for the kingdom wherever God's sovereign grace has put you and bear fruit for eternal places. Amen? So we're going to finish today a little differently. I'm going to have you stand. Please stand. And we're going to pray together from Habakkuk 3. And we're going to pray these incredible last three verses together. And we're going to raise our hands while we pray to the Most High. So raise your hands and we're going to pray this together. You ready? Say it out loud together. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's He makes me tread on high places. Amen? Amen. That, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. So we're going to sing.